As we've read from that psalm, as we have sung from that psalm, it is now referenced in our text, at least indirectly from Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read a parable, which is a fourth in a movement as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, declaring openly and presenting that he is the Jewish longed for, awaited King and Messiah, of which the leaders and all of the nation rejected him. And he's going to then give another warning in a fourth movement from this parable, beginning at verse 33 through verse 41. Hear the word of God. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, and they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their seasons. Father in heaven, we pray that the Spirit of God would open our hearts, that we would be humble. Lord, we. We know the script, we know the narrative, we know the words to say, we know the gospel. In our minds, we can articulate it well with our tongues. But Lord, sift through our hearts and make us humble. That the gospel will affect us this day by showing us the Son and who the Son is, and may we understand the Son. Not merely give the answers, even the right answers, but then with our lives acknowledge and so live in obedience to Him. So grant the Spirit to make the application in each one of our lives that would bring forth the fruit that would please our God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A parable is a story that is intended to give us a, a spiritual truth and to teach us something. And here we have uh, the story before us. And first of all, we can quickly identify the, the characters of the story. We have a landowner who owns a vineyard, and that is God the Father. We have the vineyard which is the nation of Israel. And this is not an unknown metaphor, for we saw in Psalm 80 uh, that we sung about, that the Jews would have been very familiar with that psalm. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, we have the vineyard, the metaphor of the vineyard again. The the Jews, and especially the leaders, would have been very familiar with that text. 
We have the vine growers, and the vine growers here are really part of the focal point of the relationship between the owner and the vine growers. The vine growers are the leaders of the nation of Israel, both the civil and the religious leaders. And then we have the son that the owner then eventually sends to the vine growers. And the question is, who is the son? And that is the question. It was the issue when Jesus told the parable. It was some issue 20 years later when Matthew wrote this in the parable. It has been the issue ever since that parable, and it's been the issue right up until this day, and still is the issue. Who is the son that the owner sent? It is the ultimate point that his listeners must grapple with. And that which Jesus was confronting before them at this occasion. But it's also something that is applicable to us. Who do we say the Son is? Now I know that you all would say the right words out of your mouth. Just like they, on the very end of the parable, when Jesus finally asked them, what will happen to these vine growers? The the leaders answered correctly. Their hearts did not conform to what they professed. So we have the identity of all the characters. The question is, who is the Son? And that's what Jesus is pressing upon them at this hour. As He comes into Jerusalem, who am I? He says. This is what He was getting at. The second thing we need to determine is the plot of the thing, of the story that is involved and involves all of those characters. And the storyline, it's the story of the the whole history of the relationship between God and those that He has entrusted the care of His nation. That's really what's going on here. That's who He's speaking to at the moment. And that really is the whole storyline. In verse 33, God planted a people. This is the vine. It is His nation, His people. And He planted them in the land of Canaan. And we have the similar language in other portions of Scripture. So there's no question about it. This is one of those parables and one of the few that was so simplistic and so obvious that even unbelievers could understand where he was going with it. Intentionally so. Well, that vine, the nation of Israel, was planted in that land in the date of 1400 B.C. He led them out of Egypt in 1440. And 40 years later, in 1400, he planted them in the land of Canaan. And that was the time that God planted the vine. And down through verse 36, we have the entirety of the Old Testament history of those relationships that would subsequently then come 
And God sends his prophets to obtain the fruitful response of his people. And it's the same fruitful responses that he expects of us, his people, today. When God has graced his people with the knowledge of himself, and he has approached his people, and he has planted his people, he expects then fruitfulness. And there are three fruitful responses that God seeks from his people you think about it being a fruitful Christian, a fruitful life, think about it in basically three things. First of all, he wants pure worship. That's a fruitful response. In the Old Testament history, that is the worship that displays the glories of his creation and the glories of his redemption. These twin themes that go together and are inseparable. Worship is not an option. It is a fruitful response to one who has been affected by the grace of God. A second fruitful response is that he also expects holy living, which is conducive to the pure worship that he expects. Holy living. A changed life. A sanctified life, a, a pursuit of holiness, and putting off the old man, putting on the new man, something different from the world, set apart from the world. That's the word, what the word holy means. Set apart not only unto ourselves as a community, but set apart in our, our character, our behavior, the way we talk, the way we think, our affections, the way we feel, the way we respond, the way we relate. All of this. Who we are in our character is a fruitful response to the grace of God in Christ Jesus in filling us with the Spirit and bringing forth the fruit of His Spirit to those who are yielded to Him. And a third fruitful response that God seeks from all of His people is to be a light unto all of the nations. This is ministry. This is ministry. This is getting involved in ministry. Using the spiritual gift in ministering to the church to edify her for the very purpose of being the light and going out and discipling the nations and evangelizing the lost. And this is ministry. Those are three fruitful responses that God has always sought from His people and especially so for us today. However, as the parable relates in the Old Testament history testifies, not only was this nation fruitless, but when those messengers came that God sent, they were refused, they were abused, and some of them were killed. We have numerous accounts on how many of the prophets were treated like this as a nation. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He's the one that wrote Lamentations. Isaiah warned, uh, was warned by God. He's going to preach to a people that would not hear and that will not heed. On and on it goes. 
We have a whole summary of this in the very end of 2 Chronicles in chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. And this is what God summarizes. He says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no more remedy. When the Lord told the story that day, there would not have been any of His hearers who would have disagreed with that narrative of the nation of Israel up to that point. All of the leaders which Jesus is speaking this parable to would have agreed with that. This was familiar to them. They agreed with this this unjust action of the nation and the prophets, of what they did to the prophets. And you know, the Lord is just giving them the same story Just dressing it up in different terms, and no one's disagreeing with it up to this point. But when you come to verse 37, there's an entirely new factor that enters into the relationship between God and these leaders, because now God sends His Son. And this is the part that they missed. And for us, this means that the New Testament era, the New Covenant, has been ushered in with the sending of God's Son. The landowner sent his own son with a different expectation of how they will respond to his own son. They will respect my son, the landowner says. Now when the Lord says this... God is not ignorant, okay? That's not the idea behind the parable on this point. He's communicating this way to show the utter willingness on the part of God to go to the greatest length to obtain a right response from His people. That's kind of the idea of His expectation. They will treat my son differently. And up to this point, Jesus has been through His entire earthly ministry telling His audience that He was continually saying to them, My Father sent me. My Father sent me. My Father sent me. He was continually insisting He was that Son, the Son of God. Peter, who do you say that I am? Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's why they, he's putting this, impressing this parable. The issue is, to these leaders, who is that Son? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John chapter 5, I do not seek my own will, but the Father who sent me. John 5, 36 and 37, but I 
have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do. The works that you're seeing. Bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me. Over and over again, He declares Himself to be the Son of God. The One who has been sent of the Father. He is the One now coming to the nation of Israel. He is the Son in the parable that will be killed. Over and over, Jesus affirms this truth. He is the Anointed One. That's what the Messiah, the word Messiah means. The Messiah comes from, uh, the Hebrew word means to, uh, to pour over. To pour a liquid over. And that's the idea of anointing. Because in the Old Testament they would pour a liquid, an oil, typically that olive oil, when they anointed one for a particular office, particularly prophets, priests, and kings. And this anointing signified, the oil was signified the Spirit of God through which they would be empowered to do their work. They were looking for the anointed one, the Messiah that would come, and he would be the one that was anointed of God the Father and sent. And here was Jesus. How much clearer could it be? These miraculous works testified of Him. John testified of Him. The Father testifies of Him. And He has all of these witnesses testifying. He is the One. He's the Son of the vineyard owner. And when this generation stands up in the judgment, the one thing they will not be able to do is plead ignorance. Oh, we didn't know. Contrary to all of your expectations, when, when the vine growers saw the son, they conspired to kill him. Now this is actually shocking. This is not what we would expect. We know where the story is going. We've heard the story before. We know the narrative that it's trying. But if you are hearing this for the first time through virgin uh, eyes and, and ears and, and mind, this is shocking that they would kill the son who would eventually inherit the vineyard and then could do whatever he wished. See, you just can't get away with that. From the coming of the son, from the very time he was born, the nation was intent on murdering him. Herod sought to kill the king of the Jews. Throughout his entire ministry, there are various attempts on his life. But his time was not yet. And even as he speaks, even as he's given this parable, the final arrangements have already been made for his murder. If you compare the harmony of the Gospels, and you see that the rulers, these rulers that Jesus is speaking with, they've already met. They've already conspired. And they're just now looking for the opportunity to take and kill Jesus. And for that reason, this parable given at this moment in juxtaposition to what they have already conspired to has all the more conviction. All the more testimony in the day of judgment. 
In verse 38, we see a prophecy that's been thinly veiled. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. You think about the leaders. They have already conspired to kill Jesus. They're putting the dots together. They understand what Jesus is saying. In fact, they understood him clearly. In verse 39, we're told something that's completely beyond our imagination. They, they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed the son. If you didn't know the outcome, that would be shot. You would be indignant with that. Remember David when he was confronted with Nathan the prophet through the words of a parable and he became indignant. And Nathan says, thou art the man. And that's, that's in likeness of what Jesus is doing in this parable. But unlike David, they didn't repent. They didn't own it. They weren't humble. Their pride had so deceived them and they were so self-consumed that now they are believing the lies. You remember not far... I know we've been in Matthew... For a while. We've been in Matthew 21 for a while. But do you remember just, just a day before, historically speaking, they were shouting and testifying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're all, the whole city's in uproar, right? Well, in only a couple days, they're all going to be saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. the leaders, and all of the people. All of them. He was forsaken by all. Pilate then goes out and he, he tells all of the people and the jeering crowds, I find no fault with them. But the Jews then testified, saying, He claims to be the Son of God. They testified that they knew what he claimed to be. And they said, that's blasphemy and worthy of death. Pilate said, I don't want to have any part to do with this. And he cleanses his hands. You know what the Jews said in response to that? His blood be on us and our children. His blood be on us and our children. Crucify Him. That is a fearful, fearful thing that they said. So in verse... 40, the question then comes. And Jesus finishes the parable and says, so what will the owner do to the vine growers? What will be done for murdering the son? What's the penalty? And they conclude two things. 
First of all, in verse 44, the landowner will avenge the murder of his son and bring the vine growers to a miserable end, they say. And number two, they're going to turn over his property to someone else altogether. Correct. They got the answer right. They understood the parable. They understood that he was even speaking of them. The Lord allowed them to answer. They knew that the Lord was systematically boxing them into a corner. God will avenge the murder of his son. And those who murder his son will forfeit all the privileges and others will obtain it. And we see down in verse 45 and 46 of the passage, they understand this. Now the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parable. They perceived that he was speaking of them. And they knew because they would testify in a couple days, he claims to be the Son of God. The Son, they knew of this. But then verse 46, But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes, because they took him for a prophet. He boxed them into a corner. They couldn't get out logically. They couldn't get out with truth. They couldn't get out with with the evidence. They couldn't get out with revelation. They had no way out of the corner because Jesus spoke the truth. So what is their response? They tried to kill him. They could have yielded to the truth. They could have repented of their sins. They could have changed their direction. They did not do that. They went actually the other extreme. They tried to kill him. Sinful hearts that are unrepentant become indignant with their authority when the authority disciplines them for their sin. Rather than being humble and contrite and repentant, they actually go to the opposite extreme. Parents, you probably have seen this. Because your children have a fallen nature. For instance, have you ever given instruction to your child, for you parents, for you young parents? um, It's coming. You give instruction to your child. You make it very clear. The child knows your instruction. The child disobeys your instruction. You discipline the child for his misbehavior. The child then gets angry at the parent. Rather than becoming indignant toward himself and his own sin that brought forth the discipline, the child lashes out in his heart toward the one that's bringing the discipline, finding fault in the parent when it is for his own good. Any of you parents ever seen that before? No? Yeah. See, this is the proud and the unrepentant heart. 
A parent who deals with this needs to continue to work in the child's willfulness until that willfulness is broken. If he doesn't do this and drive out the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of the child, he will respond just like this when he is older to the son. That's what it means to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. See, this doesn't just happen to children. Uh, we're, we're all guilty of this. It happens to us all when our hearts are hard and we're filled with pride and we're so full of ourselves we don't receive correction and we tend to blame others, justify ourselves, and find fault with the very ones that are trying to help. Be aware and learn of this, lest we reject the Son. It's the same character that rejects the Son. And the blatant, obvious truth, when they know all of the facts, they're boxed into a corner, but they do not repent, but rather lash out against the one that's there to save them. Well, this brings us to the subsequent explanation later on in the New Testament exactly how all these things then took place. And we're going to come to see in a large content of what Jesus spoke about in His Olivet Discourse from Matthew 23 through 25, in particular 24 and 25. Things that took place in A.D. 70, a generation from the time that He spoke this parable when God would corporately judge the Jews for the rejection of His Son, Jesus, the Messiah. And the temple was destroyed, the city was burned, the Jews were severely persecuted by the Romans. It was the hand of God upon His people for rejecting His Son. Now admittedly, the the Jews' own declaration, His blood be upon us and our children, has been wickedly exploited throughout all of these centuries since the time they spoke it. It has wrongly been justified or wrongly justified all kinds of anti-Semitism. Since the time of the Holocaust, church leaders and historians alike have made every effort to remove from the Jew, all responsibility for the death of Jesus Christ. In the mid-60s, Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church, a big council that met, and it issued, this issue was addressed directly in the statement that was issued that came out of Vatican II is, quote, it is true that Jewish authorities and those who followed their lead pressed for the death of Christ. Still, what happened in His passion cannot be charged against all the Jews without distinction, then alive, or against the Jews of today. End of quote. Years back, you may remember a particular film that was that was pretty popular at the time called The Passion. And Mel Gibson was the one who 
who created this film and directed it and starred in it, and he was a Roman Catholic. And it raised the whole issue in a public way, such as never been presented before, and it created a firestorm of controversy around this point. Newsweek had a cover article which stated, quote, Who killed Jesus? Referring to the movie, to Mel Gibson's movie. And it concluded this, that the roots of all anti-Semitism lie in an overly literal readings, in fact, misreadings of New Testament texts. And it reiterated Vatican II's position. Now the apostles will help us to understand this the right way. In Acts 2.14... And I'm going to go through some passages in Acts here, and you can listen carefully here, but I want you to understand that it's the entire nation that was responsible. And it's just a culmination of the entire historical story that finds its climax right there in this week at this occasion when they, the whole nation, who killed the prophets before them and now kills the Son. In Peter's first sermon, he stands up in Acts 2. And he raised his voice and he said in verse 14 of Acts 2, he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And back down in verse 23, it says, You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death And then he comes to the final conclusion in verse 36. He says, Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In the next chapter we have a second sermon. In verse 13, he then says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of of Pilate, when He was determined to let Him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life. Not only do the leaders represent the nation of Israel, but as the leaders go, so goes the people. And the people themselves were the ones crying out, crucify Him! In the next chapter, as the church prayed, you can hear their words in Acts 4, verse 27, as they pray to God the Father, having just been persecuted and thrown out of the temple. He says, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do what your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. When Stephen later is speaking in Acts 7, he is asking the question, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Of course, the implication or the answer is already implied in the way the question is asked. Now, what's apparent historically? What happened 
the day of the crucifixion of Jesus, was the climax of a long history of rejection. It was not an isolated event, historically speaking. The crucifixion of Christ cannot be properly understood historically apart from the entire history of those people's relationships with God who approached them and revealed Himself to them for their benefit and they kept rejecting Him. And you have to keep that in mind. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 21 quotes from Isaiah 62. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary or obstinate people. Paul here is connecting the nation's rejection of Jesus with their entire history. In fact, he reaches back 700 years and quotes from the prophet Isaiah from 700 years earlier. And this is what was going on 700 years earlier when Isaiah prophesied that. And he brings it forward all the way until his day. And they are still rejecting Jesus. 30 years after his crucifixion. And today, the entire history of Israel was characterized by the rejection of God. And this rejection found its climax, the climatic expression as they then killed the son, the owner of the vineyard. So when they cry out, his blood be on us and our children, they didn't know the implications of what they then owned and were responsible for. A.D. 70 comes along, and what happened to those children, to the children whose parents says, His blood be on our children, those children who crucified Christ and were responsible for His blood, the Romans crucified so many Jews, they literally ran out of wood to make crosses for. Roads were lined outside of the city walls with crucified children of the people who crucified the Son of God. His blood be on us and our children, is what they said. What will the landowner do? They said he will destroy those wicked men miserably. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers to render him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said, yes. You have answered correctly. The first level of historical explanation is the the explanation of what happened. There's a second level of explanation, which is the theological explanation that the apostles explain why it happened. 
What they did is what God had already predetermined and purposed to occur. It was the Father's purpose. He was commending His love toward these people. He sent His Son to have everlasting life. This is the purpose of the Father historically in the rejection of His Son by the, uh, the Son of the landowner. But Matthew 23, which we'll come to, He tells these Jews, Jesus is saying to them, you will not see Me anymore until that day when you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And so far, they haven't said that. After his resurrection, he did not reveal himself to many of those unbelieving people. And what that statement does indicate, there will be a continuation of that very people until the time that they say that. And so far, they have not said that. But there will be a time when they say that. And God will engraft His people back into the natural olive tree once again. So historically and theologically, the Scripture explains that there's still a future that is coming even as it pertains to the Jew. But in this whole story, this narrative historically, in this whole story of this explanation theologically, there's a parallel of this story to every life and every one of us here today. Every one of us who has been approached by the Lord. To anyone to whom God has sent His messages and His demands and from whose life He expects fruit. Fruit in proportion to the favor that He has shown. The good reproofs of a father to his children. The tears of a loving mother. The sermons of a faithful pastor. And exhortations from godly friends. And people refusing and dismissing and representing themselves as Christians when they are not. Singing as though they are disciples of Jesus when their hearts are in rebellion against God. There's an individual parallel to this storyline between God and the nation of Israel that has personal application. And when we come to understand the heart of the Lord and what His demise will be for the individual who persists in His refusal and rejects the Son of God, what is the penalty for murdering God's Son? What is the penalty? It's very difficult for anyone outside of Christ to accept any responsibility for the death of Christ. And so they make excuses for others 
and for themselves. But when you understand the theology that God sent His Son to save the world through the death of His Son, then what we recognize is that my sin and your sin necessitates His death. And you and I can affect effectively second the motion, if you will, of what the Jews did that day. And dismiss and despise His blood and the greatest overtures of God the Father that He has sent to me. I can second what they did and incur the guilt that was theirs. Have you ever wondered if you were in Jerusalem that day how you would have responded and what you would have said? Oh, I would have never done that. I would have been saying, Hosanna. And every one of them turns to say, crucify Him within days. Within days. Do you think you were beyond that? Above that? Able to avert that? No. You would have been right there along with me saying, crucify Him. Crucify Him. You know, many of our hymn writers are written or hymns are written from that perspective of coming to the awareness that we are all responsible for the death of Christ. And Jesus gives great warning to anyone who persists in their rejection of Him. The consequences will be severe. And what you see lined down the, the road in Jerusalem that the Romans ran out of wood. What you see visually indicates only an inkling of the spiritual wrath in the great day of judgment that God will have upon all these people. I say, I just don't think people recognize that. I don't think people own that. I don't think people believe that. Jesus gives great warning of the severe consequences of anybody that rejects Him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. So take responsibility for your life and make sure Jesus is truly your Lord of your life. You know the script. You know the story. You know the answers. You can answer the parable. But has He truly got your heart? And has your heart been given to Him in full? If He's not the Lord of your life, then today is another opportunity. Another day that He has given you as a great opportunity to turn your life in humble repentance and yield your life to the complete Lordship of Him in your life. Ask Him to save you from your sins. Confess that He is Lord of all. And bow your heart before Him this day. And if this is true of you, and you know it in your heart, where not you're convincing yourself, but the Spirit of God is crying out, convincing you that He is Father, and He's crying out, Abba, Father, then you can thank God that He preserved you and saved you, though you're responsible. And He has not rewarded you according to what you deserve but saves you and gloriously saves you. And He has blessed you. And so 
One of the fruits is thanksgiving and gratefulness and pure worship and a holy life and ministry being the light to the world. Go and be faithful in this gratitude. Let's pray. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for the great redemption of our souls, for the saving of the whole lot of us, your people. We're thankful for the promise of what you are still going to do in the great time of the consummation when Christ returns and makes everything new and makes all of the wrongs right and establishes in the completeness the new heavens and the new earth. And we're thankful that we can live today making decisions today in the light of where it's all going. So we pray that the Spirit of God would make the application specific to each one of us. And if there is one here today that's been rejecting Christ in his heart, this day would be the day of his or her salvation. We pray that this day would be the day of our grateful praise, renewed in the covenant of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.